Welcome to The Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 82, Continuously Improving Culture for Everyone with Chris Lalamir. One of the big challenges of continuous improvement is that different kinds of workers have very different expectations for their own professionalism, for customer service, and for how their management should behave. Chris Lalamir ran into this when he made career moves from engineering to financial services and then to entrepreneurship in the home repair business. He's here to share how he made those transitions and what he has learned about building a culture for continuous improvement with different kinds of workers. Chris Lalamia, welcome to the Edges of Lean. Happy to be here. Excited about this. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And uh, like many folks who come on this uh, podcast, you're somebody who started your career as an engineer. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. But uh... you are... You are not doing that today at all. So tell us about that journey. Yeah, so I uh, I actually have not only a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree in engineering and went out to work in manufacturing. But I've always wanted to run my own business. Uh, so I went off to get some business experience and worked for a company called uh, Anderson Consulting or now Accenture, and that's that company. But found myself in banking, got that job that everybody is coveting. And I was in a corner office with 400 people working for me. Uh, running a commercial loan operations division, uh, but I just I just did not like what I was doing. I actually started to really hate it. I didn't feel like I was fulfilling everything that I could be. So I uh, started the Trusted Toolbox, a handyman remodeling company in 2008. That's right, right when the recession started. So timing kind of stinks. Uh, yeah, great timing, Chris. Great. Yeah, yeah thank you. <laughs> and so now I'm in the, um, as we talked about before, People call it the blue-collar world of handyman. We do uh, home repairs all around the house, drywall repair, wood rot repair, up to bath and kitchen remodeling now. So I have a remodeling division and a handyman division here in the metro Atlanta area. Wow. Wow. So that is, that is a, a pretty circuitous path there. When you, when you, so you, you had a bachelor's and master's in engineering um, and you went, worked for Anderson, you know, which is now 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 Accenture and you went into banking so was was that your first your first position out of school no my first position actually was manufacturing we um my ah. first out of school was I made flap actuators for Curtis Wright flight systems I was a manufacturing gear engineer uh and we made the flap actuators for Boeing 767s so if you're flying on a 767 look out because that might be the stuff I worked on <laughs> wow Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that stuff has been around a, a little while, but it's, you know, it's, if it's well engineered, it sticks around. So you must have had a culture shock when you went from um, engineering, from, from, from a manufacturing, manufacturing engineering job to Accenture. And then, as you said, uh, you, was, you were telling us in Accenture, you were you weren't you weren't feeling fulfilled with that. I would love you to talk about what you saw in the like the the variety of culture and how how you fit or didn't fit in those cultures personally. Oh, I love that. 
So in manufacturing engineering, I was actually out on the floor working with uh, with machinists quite a bit. Uh-huh. Uh, I was kind of a blue collar engineer working my way up in management, um, but I had a lot of rough edges. And my biggest culture shock going to Anderson Consulting at the time um, was working with people who didn't think like me. Uh, as an engineer, mm. very pragmatically, we're problem solvers. It's very linear in the way we solve a problem. Um, we don't really welcome too many other opinions, if you will. And I had worked with a lot of other engineers who thought uh, just like I did. So our solutions were very engineered, if you will. And the first thing I learned when I got there was, number one, time to, uh, trying to smooth those rough edges off, but also to embrace the diversity of decisions that you can get and the outcomes you can get with a better team. So I was working with political science majors, English majors, journalism majors, but they were uh, all working for one goal, and that was to solve a problem for a client. We got a better decision, a better answer, if you will, from the team. So that was probably the biggest thing is really to start to embrace other people's thoughts from a diverse background. Wow, wow. And, and you know, that's one of the things that, that I hear frequently from people who studied in engineering um, is that they went into engineering because they weren't necessarily comfortable working with people. So they preferred yeah, work, working with the numbers, work, you know, working with materials, working working with a computer than actually working with the people. But somebody, um, and I don't know if that's you, Chris, I kind of doubt it, but but um, it sounds like you were thrown right into into that with, with Anderson, but it still wasn't what you wanted, right? So you had this big aha, but it wasn't really what you wanted. Well, I, I really enjoyed my time at Anderson and Accenture. Uh, it really helped me. Uh, solve uh, and build my toolbox, if you will, of skills. Uh-huh. Um, I went to work for one of the clients we were working for in Atlanta called SunTrust Banks at the time, which is now Truist. Um, and then I was there for five years before I decided to leave. So my culture shock going from being a consultant where I was flying all over the uh, nation, I wasn't really all over the world, but I was all over the US, Canada, uh, flying around doing things. I get to work at home and it was great, but I was also put in a silo in a bank and you're also not allowed to be very creative in a very big company. Um, So my next biggest thing was I was the alien in the room. I was different than other people. Uh, So different as uh, as a matter of fact that we have a, uh, we had a corporate shrink. I joke about that, but I had to go get my personality tested twice while I was at the bank. Did you? To see how I could best fit with these bankers. Uh, And- uh, Ah. I, um, I wanted to be creative. I wanted to be optimistic. I wanted to work across different silos. But in large organizations, you need people to stay in your lane, do what they're supposed to do, and stay right there. But what I found is, as I moved up in that organization, I had, like I said, I had that job, 400 people working for me, is that it just got really draining because all I was doing uh-huh. was giving status, getting status, or covering my butt, uh, and trying to justify our existence as an organization. Uh, that is that is a really hard to, place to be, isn't it? Because because um, you've you've got some pressure coming from below. You've got pressure coming from from above, and you know you don't necessarily feel like you're getting to do the work that you want to do, right? And that's exactly right. What, one of the things about corporate America is you have a lot of resources available to you. But for me, uh, as I, I feel like I've always had an entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I didn't necessarily need those resources. I needed the, the ability to work outside the box, be creative, be a problem solver, and not be shackled with um, processes and bureaucracy that I felt like was overburdening. 
And that's really what sort of just dried me down. And I became really, I was really not a very nice person to be around. My family, had, oh. yeah, yeah, I was pretty miserable. Uh, I was a pretty ornery dude. I, but I was making a lot of money. And I had a great lifestyle that I had provided for my family, but I just, I mean, and I love life. I love to have fun. I love to be fun. I love to solve problems with people. And that's my thing. And I was just finding myself going down and atrophying, if you will, not growing. Well, good for you for recognizing that and, and making a change. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people kind of get stuck um, with what, a, you know, what kind of a golden handcuffs, right? It's, it's. It's hard to leave um, because you you are well paid. Yeah, all the pay, all the benefits, um, all the resources. Um, I didn't. I did have to work hard because uh, I always do. That's just kind of who I am. Um, so I was putting a lot of hours in. But you're right. It was hard to say I'm going to go. And then looking at that wild world of being an entrepreneur, I actually took a mm. year before I left uh, to plot out my path. Uh, this wasn't my first idea uh, coming up and being a handyman or remodeler. This was uh, down the path. Uh, then I took uh, a full six months to build the business plan on this. So I did it. I did it using my engineering background of being pragmatic and thinking about it. But when you get ready yeah. to make that leap, you know, people ask me, hey, man, 14 years, would you ever go back? I'm like, no, but you can sure have those first four years back because people ask me after two years, what do you miss? I said, I miss a paycheck because <laughs> I wasn't getting one. <laughs> You, yeah, right, right. But but uh, you you got through that part. So you were. We've already talked about you kind of you kind of moved from one culture to another. You you went from engineering into consulting, and then into into working for the client. And it's and for those of us who have done both, you know, it is it is very different working inside a company as opposed to being as opposed to being a consultant that comes in, helps to solve a problem, and then, you know, frankly leaves and doesn't have to deal with the complete implementation um, of, the, of that problem. So that, that feels really different. You've worked, you've worked with the, um, the mechanics, you've worked with, with the bankers, and now, Chris, you've started this new business now, so who are you working with now? So my employees are really what I like to call skilled trades. Um, in fact, uh -huh. I challenge to them every day. And I have 15 handymen and five project managers. Um, these guys are lone wolves. Um, they view themselves as artists, uh, really, that they can do things in houses. And what I do is I challenge them to be an artist every day. Um, and I use a phrase that St. Francis of Assisi said in the 1500s, if you work with your hands, you're a laborer. If you work with your head and your hands, you're a carpenter. Most of the guys will say, yeah, that's what I am. I said, but if you work with your head, your heart, and your hands, you're an artist. If you're an artist today, you can work with them. So that's been the big thing that I'm out there trying to promote is that while they're blue collar, they are doing things that a lot of us just can't do. You don't have the mm. time or the tools. So we're not below you because you're an IT programmer. We're not below you because you're a manufacturing engineer who has a master's degree in engineering. We're equal because we're doing something that you probably can't do yourself and hanging a door or replacing a window or um, changing out drywall and getting it smooth. So these guys really are artists. And that's what the challenge that I try to give to them every day. And it's been coming through in the way we get reviewed and how we looked looked at here very favorably in Atlanta. Chris, when you bring somebody into your organization, are they, they're probably not used to being treated and respected in that way. Is that true? 
Absolutely. Um, these guys are very much like like your artists. This would be if you're going to go out to um, a bar this weekend and listen to a guy play the guitar. That's a gig economy worker. Well, these guys are really yeah. used to being gig economy workers. Many of them have never worked for anybody before. They were on their own. This is the first time they're actually a W-2 employee. So you have to be very careful because they really are like lone wolves. They're used to going out and foraging for themselves, providing for themselves and their families. Mm. So we invite them into our wolf pack. Um, and so if you know this about wolves, is that I got to give these guys enough freedom to be problem solvers and go out there and take care of customers. But if I give them too much bureaucracy, too much ownership or process or try to put them in a silo, then they became, become domesticated dogs and they're not solving any problems and they're not fulfilled. And this might sound like a story I just got done telling you. And that's how I felt. And so I try to make that very clear with these guys. I do a lot of training with them. We come in every other Wednesday, but right now I'm doing this podcast with you in the middle of the day on Friday. And right now I have 20 people out there running around doing things for the trusted toolbox. And I'm not there with them telling them what to do or how to do it. But your voice is probably in their head, Chris. I think so. Um, and, and it's very careful how we've been able to craft that message. Uh, to, again, let them know that you are a lone wolf, but you're part of our wolf pack. You do things our way and you will actually be able to provide for your family better, have a better day in terms of the transaction with the customer. And you get to go out there and show off your artistry. And by proving it to the people and the guys that have come through and a couple women have come through as well. Um, right. Some of the longest tenured employees uh, are guys who were on their own, have never worked for another person and said right now, you know, I, I, I don't want to go anywhere else. I love what I'm doing because I'm able to do what I need to do. And you guys are taking care of all this stuff I don't want to do. And that's what I, that's what artists really want, right? They, well, I think it is what a lot of people really want is I want to do the thing that, that I love and I don't want to have to, you know, find a client. I don't, I don't want to have to do marketing. I don't want to have to mess around doing the, the taxes or the payroll, you know, um, or whatever it is. So, so that you're really helping them uh, fulfill their passion, right? Fulfill, fulfill their purpose. I think so. Um, yeah, I'm very proud of the culture we built there because um, right now I have a, an operations manager and a training manager uh, that take care of the training. I just sit in the back and then um, punctuate the points at the end of our training. Um, but I've been very uh, clear with these guys is that the culture we're trying to build are allowing these artists to go out there and shine like they're supposed to each and every day without putting too many shackles or processes on them. But we still want them to follow our thing because we, we know is that a professional handyman can be rewarded for what he's doing as long as he acts like a professional he gets there. So we talk a lot about that customer service piece with our guys. Uh, that's very interesting to me, Chris, because, you know, certainly one of the things that, you know, I think as many of us has, when you when you hire somebody to come and work in your house, you know, an independent contractor, you may or may not get a return phone call. Uh, you may or may not get a completely filled out contract. You may or may not get, you know, somebody may turn up one day and then they vanish for a week. I mean, these are all the things that make people so frustrated. Um, and, and, you know, so we know that there are probably reasons for all of that, things like perhaps taking on too much work and, and not balancing their workload. Um, but at the same time, or just not knowing that it's important to call somebody back, right? Uh, you know, right. But but the, these are these are all things that get in the way of that of a great customer relationship. When I, it's just intriguing to me that with this 
with your company that you that you even have a training manager. I mean, I can certainly imagine, imagine you know, a, an organization like yours that what, that would have, a, you know, some project managers, some schedulers, things like that. But to have a training manager, to have this big focus on culture, I'm, I'm sure you realize it, is really quite unusual. Um, Especially at our and, size and what we do. Yeah, um, at, so at your size. Uh, it's a cost that, that that hurts the bottom line, you know, as an entrepreneur trying to make as much money as you possibly can. Uh, but I do know that the long run for us to grow is, uh, I think Warren Buffett said best, bigger is not better, better is better. Uh, we've actually been able to grow and, and be bigger and we're better uh, because I've been able to invest in this training manager and it's starting to, uh, I guess, prove me right. Um, but it was an investment. There's no doubt about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the training program, somebody uh, joins your company. What's, what happens in terms of training? How, where do you start? Yeah, we actually have a, a pretty uh, solid onboarding program. What we're finding, uh, and it, again, in this very tight labor market, it's been hard to find people, but when we bring them in, our onboarding process looks like this. You actually work with one of our lead technicians who's been with our senior lead technicians who've been with us for a while, for about two weeks. During those two weeks, um, you'll also come in and you will have a two hour session with me about our culture and about the three secrets of the customer because we're letting our wolves into the wolf pack. And I wanna let them know, hey, now you're gonna learn a little bit more and I'm gonna also help you with your, with your skill sets, customer service, our process, and then finally something technical. So we do that onboarding for two weeks and then we then bring them on and then we have a direct deposit payroll, again, making their life easier. They don't have to come here and get a check. A lot of these guys are used to getting a check right when they're done doing the work. These guys now know they get paid every two weeks, like we're professional. And so we do that training, but we always train around three things. Uh, one is the customer service component. The second thing is something to do with our process. So all of our guys have tablets in the field to have their work orders laid out for them to have the customers signed digitally. And so we train around stuff like that. And then lastly, we train them on something that's going to make their skill sets better. It may be a better technique for drywall, a better technique for cutting wood, a better technique for replacing rotted wood. Um, we do a lot of deck repairs here in Atlanta. And so we train them on that. Because if I don't do that last thing, the other stuff is just blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Blah. Yeah. yeah. They don't want to hear it. These guys are not classroom learners. They are not the guys who are going to go off and get a master's degree in engineering because they want to learn with their hands. So we make it a pretty succinct one-hour meeting uh, where we hit them with the three things. But again, I am really passionate about the fact that you've always got to give them something that's going to make today's job easier for them. Oh, well, that's, that's great. So, and again, this is this is to me fascinating, you know, this shift of cultures that, you know, again, from, from working with mechanics to working with the bankers and, I, you know, also the, the Anderson people, Accenture people who have their, their own ways of working and now working with your, with your skilled trades. And um, so, Chris, I'd love to know a little bit more about yourself and um, it sounds to me as if you have either have always had or have developed um, uh, a sense of empathy. Um, where did that come from? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's been a learned skill for me. Um, I've, uh, one of the things I've actually put down uh, for myself is I think today's leader needs to be more self-aware than ever uh, about who they are and what they do. 
Uh, and that's been something I've had to learn. I, you're, you've hit on it. I've been through a lot of different cultures. I started in high school as a machinist in a manufacturing shop. When uh -huh. I went out to college, I played football. So all these different cultures that I was in and all these different teams I was a part of have helped form something that's really important to me. And that's, I do love leading people. And sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's challenging and it's all the above. But um, I realize that you have to be self-aware as a leader. And I've had to learn that because I'll give you an example. My Accenture team of three or four when I first started uh, were some of the most incredible people I've ever worked with. And these are your English major, journalism major, poli-sci major, people mm -hmm. that I had to work with. And then I learned that great people, given a little bit of direction, can take off and go things. Then I had to learn at the bank that I had a lot of uh, second income earners working in remote locations doing doc prep. And you had to really get your message out without being in front of them. And so I had to learn how to get a message out to a lot of people very succinctly, but powerfully, but I had to do it by written word at the time. And then working with my skilled trades today, these guys, uh, I tell you something else. Um, I talked the language. Um, I actually wrote a book about it called From the Zoo to the Wild. Uh, and in there, I would tell you one of the things I've learned is that sometimes a well-placed F-bomb is just what they need to hear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's been good. And that's, um, I think the empathy, uh, and that's one of the things I, I truly say this uh, in our training, we say we're extraordinary people doing amazing activities in houses every day. And that's what I really think these guys are. And that's the challenge. And sometimes you have to give them that belief and see if they can rise to that belief. So how do you then, on the other side, you, you have the training, and I love that they start with working with somebody for two weeks, so they have an opportunity to see how the work and the culture plays out with a real person before they get the the, the classroom and, and the and the and the talk with you. That that has to be really helpful. How do you then evaluate people as they as they are progressing? That's a great question. Um, if you think about what a handyman does, everybody uh, listening to this, if they own a house, you have a preconceived notion of what a handyman is, which is all across the board. And I can tell you, if there are 10,000 people listening to this, there are going to be 10,000 different opinions. But what I will tell you is that nobody is an expert in the house. So what we do is we ask them in the beginning to rank themselves in each of the different skills that we work in. And there's about 10, and we ask them to rank themselves one to 10. While they're working with our guys, whatever the skill is that they're doing that day, our senior lead technicians will come back and say, we have the trusted toolbox way scale. And based on my opinion of how he did, I would rank him good in, you know, I'd rank him a six in trim carpentry. I'll rate him a seven in drywall repair. I'll rate him a two in plumbing. And so we're really a skill-based routing company, which is a really difficult thing to do. And that's why my scheduler who has to schedule 15 guys all around Metro Atlanta, uh, on a daily basis has a tough job because she's trying to get the right guy to the right job. So we continually evaluate them on their skills and their technical skills, but we're also measuring how they're doing out in the field customer service wise. And then it seems to me then when you, the probably the first time you give them that self-assessment, that's also the first step in them developing their own self-awareness. Um, because I would tell you, we, we've, we've got it. You can imagine this. If I went, all right, Bill, I'm going to ask you to rank yourself in communication. I'm a 10. Okay. Well, how are your technical skills? I'm a 10. Okay. How are your, uh, your telephone skills? I'm a 10. So I've had the guys that come in and give themselves 10s on everything. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
the guys who realized after two weeks come back and go, well, I guess I'm more like a six, I'm more like a two. I'm <laughs> and you start to get the real idea. I'm like, uh-huh. so what we tell them is be real because if you're not real with us, we can't help you get to that level you want to get to personally and professionally. Right. But, but it's, it's, it's really cool though, because what you're, you're doing is somebody comes in and they give, they rate themselves all tens, um, you know, which, you know, everybody has something that they, that they can improve. Right. So, so you know that that's probably not right. Um, but then they have that opportunity then to do it again, to re to reassess. And, um, I, that's, I mean, you're teaching them, it seems to me you're teaching them the skills that you have gained along the way. And I'm sure you're doing this intentionally, but the thing, all these things that you've gained along the way, you're giving them, you say you don't like process, but you sounds like you have some really good process that allows people to, to move into the culture and, you know, to be somebody who's self-aware, somebody who is excited about improving their skills. Some, somebody who is, understands the value of customer service and is able to improve their customer service skills. Is that? Yeah, I think you hit on it. So you did say one thing. I, I actually do love process. I just don't want to <laughs> over process. So a lot of the, I do have an operations manual. I do have uh, a lot oh, of yeah. things right out there because again, to get bigger, I learned that I had to um, if you take the, the, all the experiences I've had, when I had 400 people uh, all around the southeast of, it, um, of the U.S., I couldn't see each and every one of these 400 people. Right. I had to get this message out, number one, of our culture, which is a, still a really hard thing to do, but also make sure that everybody was starting to do things consistently so we could get a consistent experience for customers. And I realized that with our teams, as I grew from one to two, then I got my first person in the office uh, eight months after I'd started, that's three. Now I'm up at 32 total employees. Um, I've got to do a lot better job of being more consistent in my communication and the process helps them because it helps them flourish. But if I over-process, then it gets to be a killer. Right, yeah. And, and yeah, that, there is that sweet spot, right? So so what um, I was I was kind of chuckling to myself um, back in the beginning when you were talking about how you felt like you were weighed down by process um, at the bank. You know, as a as a lean professional, continuous improvement person, I'm I'm all about process, but it's it's about process with a purpose, right? Process that has been put into place because we had to fix a problem one time, and then now that's the process we follow when we never improve it. That's always painful and onerous. But right. you're you're really talking about process that that has a purpose. You know why you're doing it. And um, I'm sure that you're improving it as you as you go along. And the other thing that I that you said that I just want to call out for my listeners who are in lean and continuous improvement is you're talking about what we call leader standard work. So leader standard work is is the things that the leader is doing, the processes that the leader is following in order to build and maintain the culture that allows people to become and um, you know even better problem solvers. And Leader standard work has its benefits if you write it down and if you follow it, you assess yourself on it. And then if you improve it, because over time, you know, what you thought was the right thing to do, you learn over time it's not the right thing to do. So, um, Chris, you're, you're just like, you know, one of my favorite kind of guests is some is someone on the edges of the lean edges of lean who is not a lean practitioner but you're doing the stuff that we that we talk about and you've come into it in another way and um to me that's just a, it's it's very um it's fascinating to hear how you arrived at it 
Yeah, I love that. Thank you. So, excuse me. So, can we go back and talk about customer service a, a, a little bit more? And um, just, you've already talked about how when you teach customer service, you always do it sort of with the with the added benefit as if you sit through this conversation about cust customer service or this training on customer service, you're going to get to learn to a new way to hang drywall. Um, so, so there's, there's always something that's exciting to them. But what are the what are the things that you see that get in the way of customer service with someone who is in skilled trades? What's what's stopping them from that? Oh, this is a great question. I love you. I, I love that you brought this up. Yes, we can talk about customer service. We'll probably do it all day. Um, I'll do it right yeah. after uh, this. But the thing that gets in the way of the skilled trades is something that happens with a lot of engineers and introverts. Um, I'm doing my job. So should you. Don't come and question me about my job that I'm doing. But with customers, what they don't know is what they don't know. And a lot of times we're coming into your number one, we're probably coming into your number one asset in your portfolio. Number two, we're coming into your personal space where you've raised your family, where your personal space is. So people's anxiety level is up. So we train uh -huh. them their anxiety is up and they don't know what to expect, but they are probably expecting that you're gonna come in and make a mess. You may get half the money and not do any of the job. You may never come back and do the job again. So what these guys are saying is, well, yeah, but Chris, we're an artist. So why do I have to tell them what I'm doing? I said, because they don't know what you're doing yet. You're doing things that they don't get. You're doing voodoo. And if you don't communicate what you're going to do and set an expectation, you can't exceed it. And that's where it gets in the way with any practitioner in any business. If you just sat there and said, well, I'm doing my job. So what are they worried about? Well, they don't know what your job is going to output or result to them. And then when we make it so personal that we're coming into your house, that anxiety level goes up. I can't tell you how many times I've worked for friends or colleagues that I thought were really awesome to work with in the bank or in consulting. But when you go work in their house, it's a whole different mindset because the anxiety level goes up. So what gets in the way is the fact that we just think, hey, you know, I'm good at what I do. Let me do my job. And what are you worried about? And what they're worried about is all those other things that I just said. And so that's what we communicate to these guys. You give your plan early, they're going to leave you alone. And if you think about it in any business, if you've had somebody who was a micromanager on you, or when you came in and did the, the work you were doing and people were micromanaging you, you got to ask yourself, why? Is it just because they can't help themselves? They got out of the way, or they don't know what you're going to be doing for them. And they want to make sure they get the result they're expecting. And you don't even know what it is yet. So... That's a big piece of what we talk about customer service. We let them in on those secrets uh, of the customer. We call them the three secrets. Uh, you know, that's that's really good um, advice and information for the folks who are listening to this. Uh, so many people who listen to this podcast are um, entrepreneurs doing consulting and coaching in lean and continuous improvement. And, um, I, you know, I think there might be sometimes a tendency to come in. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to work a little magic. Don't worry. Just trust me. Everything's going, everything's going to be great. Um, and that, you know, that certainly does not help people feel comfortable. And, and what you're saying is it's, it's, uh, you know, you do it in your house. It's even, even worse. Right. But it's good advice for us as well. You know, let's, we can't go in there and say, you know, just do our lean magic, you know, take it. It's, exactly it, doesn't, right. it doesn't work that way. And, and it's also interesting. It's also interesting because I've seen actually in healthcare, more of this from healthcare providers where 
healthcare providers, some of them now are much better explaining what it is they do and why they're doing it rather than just doing things. And I, you know, that's, you know, that's an even more personal space, right? And those are the healthcare providers you trust, the ones who, who, who tell you. Yeah. yeah I think, uh, for, for your listeners, you know, having come from the consulting world, because if you've done a number of lean implementations over your career, you know that you're good at it and you know you're going to do a great job of it. Sometimes you forget to tell them why it's so great uh, and they don't know what to expect on a new engagement or a new thing. And that's why you do statements of work. However, if you work on the results and what the plan's going to be, they know what to exec expect. Now you can go exceed their expectations. Right. But, yeah. But they don't know how good you were yet. You got to prove it to them, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, Chris, when you're you're having these these customer service con conversations, then the the guys have a chance there to go out and then to practice that, right? And then they can assess themselves. Yeah, how did I do? Yeah, I think um, one of the ways we've learned how to really talk to these guys uh, is that we tell a story. We tell a story that they'll engage their brain. We'll tell a story about um, how a pilot can land a, a jet on an aircraft carrier and how it takes a team. We'll tell a story about Amelia Earhart. We'll tell different stories that will get to the brain that they want to hear, which is uh, they're skilled people. They want to hear a story. And then we translate that story into how we want this to work out in the field. And then they know the culmination of that is that they might have an easy transaction. They might get a review on their work, uh, which we also and sent them to do that. And they might actually get a tip because we are in the tipping business. Ah, yep. yeah, that, that, that's a good sign that things went well, right? Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And do they, with some of these projects, presumably they have to work um, as a team with other, with other people in the organization? Yeah, and that's also another thing that has been um, a challenge. Uh, if you're a skilled trade, um, and you're a really good carpenter, you don't really view yourself as a trainer. But what we tell everybody to do is that if you're ever working with somebody else, you guys are both there to do that great job together. Um, but if you're sharing knowledge at the time, that's great, but don't expect somebody to train the other guy. And so that's been a difficult thing. We've actually um, created a tech advisory board where we tell these four guys that when the new guys are coming in and onboarding, we're going to not charge you for them. That's free labor for you. We're going to double dip and pay both of you for the same amount of work. Uh, so you can do some of the training and culture explaining and all that stuff. So that's that's a key piece too. A lot of times, if you think about this, uh, people don't want to be trainers. If they did, they would be a trainer. They just want to go out right. there and practice their craft. Right, right, right. Yeah, and because training is another skill set altogether to learn, you know. All together, yeah. You have to have patience, which I'm learning, <laughs> but you, you've got to have the ability to teach and coach and work with somebody knowing that you're going to get, ultimately, you're going to get a better outcome, but that's, that's not what skilled trades guys are about. If you think about that guitar player playing this weekend at the bar, if he's training somebody else how to play the guitar while he's up there, he's not singing a really good song, is he? Or she's not playing the guitar the way she wants to because she's trying to train somebody. And that's how these guys look at yeah. the field. Yeah. Yeah. So, so by by having these four people be the be more in this this mentoring role you're freeing up everybody else not to have to do that so yeah yep yeah. and they're seeing the benefits of it because now they get to see better teammates come in who will make them look good on other jobs and if they come behind that person and do it something else at this customer's house we have the same 
the same quality level that's happened with the experience. Chris, you you don't just you you run this company, right? Which is which is um, you know thriving, but you're also in now the business of helping other people to understand the, these concepts. So tell us a little bit about that part of your life. Yep. So I started the Home Service Institute, where we train other companies in the blue collar space on customer service skills and setting up a, the correct training environment um, to allow these great customer service people um, who to become uh, these artists to become great customer service people. So we call it the Home Service Institute. You can find it on the homeserviceinstitute.com. It's a series of videos and consulting uh, that my training manager uh, does uh, part time as well. Um, it's actually becoming more full time as we get going, uh, which is great, but we're training other companies on why customer service actually helps with profitability, helps with your online reputation, your reputation in the field, and it helps you retain people in your company. And that's, that's I'm sure, so, well, I know it's sorely needed. It's particularly among, with, with, the, with the smaller um, organizations, you know, that that's our, our, and individuals um, in business for themselves. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, and this, uh, so I, I can imagine, as you said, you said it's part time now, but it's, it's um, the, that piece of the business is growing. Um, do you, where's your heart? Is your heart in the, in both these places? Ooh, that's a tough question. Um, my heart <laughs> is definitely always with the trusted toolbox in the beginning, but I, um, I believe in this, the Home Service Institute uh, concept. Now, um, I forgot how hard it is to start a business. So it's been a tough run to get this up and going, mm -hmm. especially right now in the home services world, we're all so busy. We don't have time for training. You know, we don't need to, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many people I talk to like, Hey, I don't need training. I'm like, yeah, I understand, but you really do. But see right now we can pick up any clients we want. I think as the economy cools again, people will start to see the value of it because I've seen the value of it. I've been able mm -hmm. to bigger and better because of this training. So I believe in it. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I'm kind of torn. I guess probably seven yeah. here. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll check back in a, in a year or so and, uh, see, see where you are, but, uh, it's, it is really something that is, that is, I can just imagine how valuable it is. Yeah. So, so Chris, um, uh, people can find you at homeserviceinstitute.com and, um, also at the Trusted Toolbox, and you're on LinkedIn as well, I believe. Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. I'm even TikToking right now uh, with my handle called the Customer Service Freak uh, because I believe in customer service so much. Um, and I have also have a podcast called the Small Business Safari where I'm helping other entrepreneurs either get into this um, or try to scale a business. That's great. That's great. So... Chris, you've, you've had this path, Chris Lamia, you've had this path um, that is taking you to all sorts of interesting places. What's your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? I, I love this. Uh, I think the one person, one piece of advice I would tell any young person starting out is seek out somebody old. Find somebody who really wants to help you. Uh, and I think you'll find them. Don't use the word mentor, but be interesting, be unique and find somebody. Because what I found is that when you talk to some of us old people, we actually like to talk to you and we like to see young, energetic people. And we want to believe in the youth. And, and when I was a young guy, I should have reached out to a lot more of the older guys. Uh -huh. 
What young people today don't know is that we were all told the same thing as young people when we were young, is that we were lazier than their, their parents and we didn't understand and we wanted something for nothing. We wanted to go fast. And, and my parents heard the same thing from their parents. And, and so it's all there, it's just a never ending cycle. So go out there and talk to people because I think you'll find you get a lot of great information. That's terrific advice. Hey, Chris Lalamia, thank you so much for traveling with me to the edges of lean. All right, thanks again, I enjoyed this. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Chris Lalamia for being my guest on The Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? We would love to hear from you. Find Chris at thetrustedtoolbox.com or on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. Subscribe and tell a friend about The Edges of Lean. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of Lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.